thirsting for a way to name the unnameable, to express the inexpressible. Tell me more. And all this science, I don't understand. It's just a job. Five days a week. Rocket. A rocket, man. I think it's going to be a long, long time till touchdown brings me around again to fire. I'm not the man they think I am at home. Oh no, no, no. I'm a rocket man. This is the explosive story of the Karamazov family. The seed of depravity and sin that was in their father was the only thing the brothers had in common. <laughs> Karamazov. We are your hosts, the Bastard Sons of Hegel. I am Carl Bookmarks. I'm Friedrich Picha. And I'm Soren Rearguard. You can follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at The Readers K. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash The Readers Karamazov. You can reach out to us uh, via email, TheReadersKaramazov at gmail.com. And you can, of course, subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash The Readers Karamazov where you will get access to bonus episodes, you'll get early access to regular episodes for as little as $5 a month. That can be yours. We're back uh, this week talking about another sci-fi book that pairs pretty well with our previous sci-fi book. So if you haven't listened to our episode on Samuel Delaney's Trouble on Triton, you should go do that immediately. It's a great listen. Um, This week we're picking up with a book that is sort of a, a, a cousin to that book in a lot of ways. It's Ursula K. Le Guin's The Dispossessed, colon, An Ambiguous Utopia. It is a book about political organization, scientific research, um, intergalactic relations, and uh, a lot of wonderful things going on in it. I'm going to turn it over to Carl in just a minute to talk um, about the book um, since this was his pick. But as always, we're going to start with a little bit of a plot breakdown for you, which I will provide. The Dispossessed is a book about two worlds with an interesting connection. There's Uros and Anaris. And Uros is the sort of the home world. And it's a lot like Earth. It's very rich and plentiful in its natural resources. And it's kind of split into various big world governments. And it, they are, as described by the inhabitants of Anaris, propertarians, which means they believe in private property and contracts and exchanges and things like that. The moon Anaris has been settled about 150 years before the action in this book by a group of essentially anarchists who left Uras to found their own world where they would be free of laws and free of private property and things like that. And so they've set up their own society on this harsh moon world. It's a kind of a, a big desert in a lot of ways. But they've set up a society that runs reasonably well where everybody gets to choose what jobs they do, they rotate in and out of jobs, they get to 
sort of partner freely as they will with other people. They Everybody gets fed. It's sort of an interesting kind of anarcho-syndicalism with some sort of socialist elements and some more libertarian elements. The uh, book centers on an Anaris uh, physicist named Shevik who decides to go back to the home planet, which nobody has done since they left 150 years before. He's a well-known physicist. He's experimenting with ideas about simultaneous time. And he's invited to go back to the home planet, and he does so. And the book kind of alternates between his story on Uros, where he's exploring the world, learning more about it, kind of learning how his ancestors would have lived in this proprietarian society, and then kind of flashbacks where it gives you his life story growing up on Anaris. And um, you see him kind of gradually become a little bit unsettled about his life there, but then also unsettled when he goes to Uras as well. And it's about him trying to navigate those things and maybe try to find a way to bring the two worlds together. I'm going to throw it over to Carl to tell us a little bit about why he picked uh, this book. Sure. Thanks, Soren. This book is, I think, a very important pairing with The Trouble on Triton, which we read before. And while I believe this one influenced the writing of Triton, I wanted to read Triton first because I think it sets up the the style and the themes of this book a little bit better by first going sort of in Delaney's prose and in his ideas a bit overboard on this theme of an ambiguous utopia or what Delaney calls a heterotopia, and then back to a kind of a little bit of a simpler plot structure and system and the sort of dialectic between these two worlds and and should they remain open to each other in spite of their sort of strictly divided worldviews or should they come together and i think the plot here mirrors and kind of crystallizes itself out of what happened in trouble on triton a little bit more easily in the way that Braun sort of moves between triton and earth is a little bit more complex and here the the chapter structure is very much one on Anares, one on Urus, and Shevik's past and Shevik's future, his sort of upbringing, and then his attempt to sort of see if the two civilizations can communicate in some way. I think a lot becomes crystallized after getting Delaney's view first, because that's kind of like, if we did it the other way, it might be, well, why, why is this book so simple? Why is there not enough, like, you know, there would be far more complexities going on between these two planets or the planet and the moon. There would be so many difficulties and differences. So I think we get more of a reason why uh, Le Guin has kind of pared it down in this book. And it just offers like an, I think we'd probably all agree, a really pleasing reading experience, uh, the switch from both worlds and the the resonances that come between them. And I think you can do that with the Triton novel in this novel as well, having read it first. And then I would say this book takes on some interesting sort of post-Marxist or late Marxist ideas where Marxists were thinking more about communes and about the anarchist threads of communes and how to put them together alongside of ecological concerns. And so ecology is much more forefront in this book than in Delaney's book, and we get a lot of the sense that both Urus and Anaris, the ecology in some way determines the ability to be propertarian or anarchist. And I, I like that 
sort of back and forth in this book and how those ideas that are somewhat from like Kropotkin or Murray Bookchin, um, they really come out in great ways. You know, I, I would almost say like this book is a sort of, you know, so many people, mostly right-wingers today are reading like the Communist Manifesto asking like, why are people still interested in this? You know, I would recommend this book instead if you're kind of interested in those ideas to see like how a whole anarchist world would work and what the the worldview that comes out of it looks like. I think that's part of what Le Guin's goal is in this book. It's almost like a primer for anarcho-syndicalism. Um, you know, what would it really look like? How could it really function? And she really fleshes that out beautifully in this book. You were talking about ecology and the ecology of each of these planets and how those ecologies give rise in some ways to certain political formations. On Anares, there's a sort of scarcity at all times, and thus they have to work together in order to produce certain things. Whereas on Uras, there's a lot of life or animals. There aren't animals on Anares. Um, at one point, Shevik or the narrator says that uh, life and the ba- the basis of the baseline of life on Uras seems to be exuberance. That there's just so much variety. There's infinite variety. As I was reading, Carl, I had a question for you because Anares is settled by Odonians who have left Uras and they have to kind of deal with these new scarcely scarce conditions and harsh conditions. They also have to kind of invent a, an Esperanto like language and create their political organization, both in an ad hoc way and in like in a planned economy way. And I know that you're saying it rises out of the ecology, but it's also very organized, right? There's a sort of, it's a response to nature, but not necessarily like on Uras, it arises out of nature, right? Yeah, I think Le Guin is very interested in the ways that ecology frames a worldview and also how language is itself an ecosystem that frames thoughts and uh, shapes thoughts. And this is like from the, this is a big linguistic theory from the 70s, the Sapper-Whorf hypothesis that, you know, there there are no thoughts available to a person that aren't available in their language and delaney um was like very interested in but also like rejected and kind of deconstructed the theory in a few of his books but Le Guin uh, takes that on in a certain way right and that's that's part of uh what i was trying to talk about with doors in the last podcast on science fiction where just changing one minute thing in a science fiction novel really gives you a sense of these kind of bigger ideas and so, like, the words capitalism aren't really used in this book, but propertarian is the anarchist version of what that would be. And it's from within their worldview where their language has created a sort of negative aspect of it. And that, I think, in a weird way, even though it's like a kind of Esperanto um, sort of muted language that they speak, I feel like it very much enriches our sense of English. You know, so often nowadays, um, we just get anti-something. It doesn't feel like a positive thing one is doing if one is anti-racist or anti-capitalist so much as if you say, well, there's a propertarian worldview and an anarchist worldview, you know, that gives a sort of positive valence to both and allows you to sort of mentally project differently, maybe, about those ideas, whereas like you're not referring back to the thing you're trying to not do. And so I, I like that about Le Guin's use of language in this book. I was just going to add a quick tag to that, which was that uh, Carl was talking about something that I think if you come to this podcast without having read Le Guin, 
the one quote from her that you might know is capitalism's power seems inescapable so did the divine right of kings she said that during a, a speech at some award ceremony and that yeah it, it's we talked about news from nowhere from by william morris a little bit when we were talking about uh delaney's book and how that as a utopia is also about how language falls out of use and then you have to come up with new ideas and i think that Le Guin, just from that one thing that people kind of know about her is very invested in the idea that the other separate warp hypothesis as well as the the need to create as carl was saying positive language about the things you're doing and not just anti-blank it kind of comes out in a funny way in the book because the language on anaris doesn't have any basically doesn't have any swear words in it um and they explain because they've basically done away with religion and so there's no blasphemous language and then there's also no taboos around sex in their culture and so it's there's like the two main although she, she doesn't address why there's no swear words related to like poop which is what i want to know uh but well, because um, it's, it's part of nature because it's part of nature i guess i guess that makes sense i mean i mean if your poop does grow things that's true someone does say hell is like the waste treatment facility right um yes that's true there's two swear words actually right there's egoizing is is a shameful thing to egoize and then hell as Friedrich is saying because Shevik can imagine this concept of hell on Urus that is a whether physical or mental it's a place of sort of uh, psychological torment that is definitely displeasing yeah. and so he under, he like understands the reason why that's bad and that's still kind of like a, a shameful thing oh this is hell that's bad but I do like that about the book's philosophical argument, though I, should, though I should say, you know, even though the book is against saying like anti-blank, the title is, of course, The Dispossessed, not, you know, it is like a negation of possession. So it still is kind of ambivalent there. You know, what, I, what I like about the book as a philosophical argument for anarchism, which I think it is, and, and we can argue about sort of where it falls on the line between anarchism, anarcho-syndicalism, libertarianism. What I like about it as an argument is oftentimes in philosophy, there's a sort of thought experiment that says, if this happens, if A, then B, and B is so detestable, um, it's so bad that obviously we can't have A. And this book kind of goes, I think, as far as one must in assuming anarchism to say, all right, B, what's so bad about B? <laughs> Everything is permitted, you know, to go back to Dostoevsky, our forebear, right? So what? Uh, what would happen then? And if the things that are permitted, you know, that happen now but aren't permitted in our world happen in this world and they are permitted and the system of punishment is so much different, there's a lot of arguments that the book makes as to why that would be better. Overall suffering is decreased a sense of like guilt and shame culture is decreased and the sense of an uh, innate immorality is sort of taken away. And because one lives by one's work, whoever you are, one is re-incentivized to not do evil, to not do bad. And so I kind of like when people are that bold in their philosophical argumentation to say, all right, these are the horns of the dilemma. I take them both. You know, I, I'm stabbed by both of them and I, I don't bleed. One of the things that I appreciate about this book, and this, again, is a tie back to Delaney's book as well, is that it's sort of posing this interesting question about these systems, which is 
What does the person of exceptional ability do within these systems that are so based on providing for all and sort of equalizing society in so many ways? And Delaney maybe complicates that a little bit because we're never sure if Braun is actually an exceptional person or just views himself or herself as an exceptional person. Whereas here, you know, it's pretty clear that Shevek is an exceptional person. He's an exceptionally talented physicist. He is able to see kind of beyond what other people are doing. Everyone, you know, his colleagues don't really understand him, but it's because he's so far advanced and he's going to move beyond. And the question then is like, how does this person survive? And it's also framed in a couple of, uh, through a couple of other people who he's grown up with, his sort of friends. How do these people who are more naturally talented or something like that than others how do they navigate this world and survive it? And, and how do they make peace with it maybe or fail to make peace with it? And it's a thorny question, right, for systems of political organization that are based around equality and sort of leveling. How do they account for and absorb and deal with these exceptional people? Because one of the interesting problems on Anaris is you said, Carl, that everything is permitted, but the one thing that's not permitted is to be exceptional, right? To kind of do your own thing, to egoize, as they say. And, and when we're first presented with that, it seems like a very good thing, a very natural thing. You don't want people egoizing because that's going to tear apart the fabric. But then as Le Guin develops the story over time, you start to, from Shevik's perspective, distrust that a little bit because what that actually looks like is a sort of bureaucracy that's woven into place so that People can't actually do what they're good at and do kind of excel and things like that. And so it's a complicated picture that she's presenting. And that's part of what makes it ambiguous as a utopia, right? Is that there's this lingering question about, which is a great question, I think, for a novelist to tackle. Because novelists, even the most sort of democratic level novelists, can't seem to fully escape the idea that somehow they have this special vocation to something. Also, I think you're hitting on a great point, and I'm glad you drove us to this, Soren, which is that the novel, as an inheritance of the 19th century and modernism, is an interiority of an individual, right? Often. To represent an Arrestian novel would be difficult because of the lack of concepts of, or the maybe distaste for concepts having to do with the ego, which is maybe why we're presented with Shevik as our hero, he is exceptional, and that's the person the novelist wants to explore often, not always. Yeah, yeah. Frederick Jameson, the the Marxist critic, makes this point about the utopian genre, and I think maybe I brought it up in the mm-hmm. in the Delaney podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, it's very hard to tell. A, it's very hard to tell a social or a personal history in a novelistic form when you're trying to portray a utopia, which is you know, in the Hegelian sense, an end of history, in which you know, history is a flat line with no ups or downs if you're plotting it. that's That doesn't make for fun reading. And this is kind of the paradox of uh, how do you make a dynamic utopia for Jameson, right? Well, it's an ambiguous utopia or it's a heterotopia, right? In the two that, in the two that we chose. And I think, you know, I purposely chose them because the, these are the two, I think, two of the best stories that are ultimately utopias. The stories still have ups and downs, right? So that's that's very important. I like what Soren said about this big question of the book. 
as to whether or not these battling worldviews and are we ultimately dismayed by the fact that Shevik is exceptional in a world where exceptionality is looked down upon. And I like that Le Guin really looks hard at both worldviews in the book, and she's making a lot of claims about human nature, and I think one of them is that on both of these worlds, what and what makes utopias, the other kinds that she's not writing bad, is that they don't deal well with the innateness of human corruption. Human corruption will exist on both of these worlds, and she does not shy away from that, even in her better version of how things should be, which is the non-propertarian anarchist world. She's, she's still saying corruption will eat at Shevik and eat at this system, and, he, and someone needs to eternally be reforming it. But I think she ends by saying sort of, what kind of world do we live on? Do we live on a world with finite resources? If so, it's better to be personally tragic and socially comic with respect to the use of resources and with respect to the value we place on individuality. Better that our society doesn't extol the individual because then we get... The, the book does a great job of sort of making it uncanny, the fact that our world has no maximum limit on personal use of resources. If you are Jeff Bezos, you could just spend all of your money burning fossil fuels as much as possible or doing whatever with is with you know within a hair's breadth within the legal limit of destroying the planet. That's totally legal to you and fine and there's no sort of people might sh shame him or something but that is his right, you know, in our system. Whereas in the system Le Guin brings up, it's like far better for the most brilliant person on the planet to be only slightly ahead above his peers and slightly more recognized than his peers, so long as he uses almost no resources. She kind of makes it uncanny the fact that we flip those values. Can I talk about two things? One is just to do a little bit of a spoiler here for the book. I'm sorry. It's what gradually is revealed over time. So when you look at Uras, you, you you initially sort of think, this sounds a lot like Earth, right? It's structured a lot like Earth. You almost maybe think, like, is she writing this like this is Earth? And then the, one of the twists is like a Planet of the Apes style twist or something. <laughs> but near the end is we find out that there are these aliens, um, two alien races that are sort of involved and are, are interacting with the Arashians. And one of them, the Terrans, are in fact from Earth, our Earth. And they have basically used up all of their resources and Earth has just like frozen over. It's a, it's a hellscape, right? Um, they've only kind of a, 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 been able to escape that somewhat through the help of this other group of kind of benevolent aliens who um, give them technology and things like that. And But what's interesting about it is that, that the earth character that Shevik meets near the end says you look at Uras and see this terrible place full of inequality we look at it and see like this is a great place because they haven't burned up all their crap and they <laughs> haven't like used up all their resources and we really like it and we're like a little envious and it, there's one way to read that where you say like oh this is this place isn't really so bad but then you read it the other way and you realize part of what Le Guin's doing is saying like taking a dig at us earthlings and saying like we're never going to learn like we 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 
destroy our planet, lay waste to our planet. And then we see another civilization that's headed down that path and we say, man, they've got it great. <laughs> like we really like that. We wish we could be like them. That, that adds a sort of an interesting layer to what you're saying, Carl, that in the end, even though there are problems on Anaris and there's the sense that Shevek and his friends will never be done reforming their society, I think you're right that Le Guin does come on down on their side and say, like, this is not a perfect arrangement, but it is a better arrangement because it won't end in the despoilation of their life. Right. And and um, all these other negative things that are going on. The other thing I wanted to say, um, thinking about it on a narratological level, is maybe part of what gives the book its energy is this sort of sense of dialectic in that we have a character who doesn't really fit in either place. And there's, a, there's so the bouncing back of the chapters is really yeah. sort of a mimicking of the way that Shevik bounces back and forth between being disgusted by Uros and like strangely attracted by some things on Uros. And then the same with his own, um, with Anaris, right? Being deeply attached to his customs and traditions, but then also feeling this pull away from them by the end of the book. And so there's a, there's a sort of dialectical tension running through the book that gives it a lot of energy, right? We're seeing this character be in this utopia and then be in this other place that we're supposed to think is not a utopia. But even in both those places, there's this sort of restless energy that he has that even physically he's moving around these worlds quite a bit more than many other characters. And so we don't have that sense of complacency that we might sense in some utopias like, yes, William Morris's news from nowhere, right? There's not that sense of, of um, stasis or, being kind of bogged down in the mire, right, or slowing down and eventually just completely running out of energy. There's this restless activity that's going on. I think that's right, Soren. And uh, uh, Carl, it kind of is starting to answer Carl's question via Frederick Jameson about how you write a utopia if you're, if, if you're representing the end of history. What's interesting about this? What is, how are you in a world that's historical or are you no longer in a, in a history? So many utopias in the you know early 20th and late 19th century have the narrative structure of like a stranger visits, right? A stranger yeah, conversion narratives, right? Exactly. And they come and they learn about this place. It's great. And they want to become a part of it. And either they, they can or they cannot. And in this world, it's a, it's a world that has interchange with Uras. It's not isolated and it's not in a separate future or something like that. He doesn't just like end up there because of some time machine or something. We have a, a person from that planet with that way of thinking coming to Uras or that, that satellite planet coming to Uras and to doing so because he has something to bring them or something to bargain with them. Um, and it's kind of discussed underneath a lot of these conversations that are going on. But like the Urashians gave the Anarest, the Odonians, Anares, because it was a, a scarce, inhabitable planet, right? Like it was something that is used for mining and some of those goods that they mine still find their way back to us. These worlds aren't like totally separate as much as they want to be. They do have interchange and the ship mindful has to go back and forth between them and, and bring products. Yeah. Yeah. I love what both of you said made me think of a lot of things. And so instead of a, a conversion narrative, one of the really interesting narratological things that's going on is it's kind of an anti-conversion narrative where Shevik is, an outsider on his own planet and then he's even more an outsider on the foreign planet but he must return home uh, because for him and this is a big theme throughout the book journeys are not about exploration and settlement and colonialization 
where you go from A to B, you take your ideas somewhere else and you enforce them. Shevik says a real journey, a real agent of beneficial change in the world is always coming home. How is he always coming home without leaving his planet, going to a new planet, and literally coming home again? And those that's the title of um, another of Le Guin's books, which is its another sort of a fantastical anthropology of a sort of beneficial anarcho-syndicalist uh, society. And we should say, too, that The Dispossessed is like, I think, the fourth or fifth in her Hainish novels cycle, which is a cycle of like eight to ten novels that all take place with this this third element outside of the Anaresti and the Arresti, who are the Hainish, who are kind of this like Hegelian synthesis of the two, right? Who watch benevolently from afar and they're sort of, you know, like a, a sort of supremely higher intelligence, like a post-singularity intelligence, sort of, you know, in a Star Trek way, benevolently interfering in these other these other planets and, and their doings and goings-on and trying to help them in some way. And at the end, one of the Hainish comes with Shevik back to Anaris to try to gain some experiential knowledge of what's going on there and to learn more about them. And, and Soren said, you know, because he's kind of this outsider everywhere, that also reminds me that Le Guin is, is very much a Taoist. And so the narrative structure as well mirrors, as it does in the previous novel, in this cycle, Left Hand of Darkness, this idea that, you know, the good contains the bad and the bad contains the good. There are no purely evil, purely good beings or moral agents anywhere. And so this is why change is always a very piecemeal back and forth, slow process. And that's kind of what the, the narrative structure is too. We go from one to the other, back and forth, slowly sort of sawing our way through the difficulty of the, mm. the differences of these two, these two planets. It's interesting because the left hand of darkness too is famously about ambisexuals, right? right. They only once a month reveal what sex they possess that month and it changes. And, there's no identity, sexual identity that they, they adhere to at all times. It's interesting when the Hainish also, this book about is about, you know, the histories of these peoples and how the Odonians sort of sever themselves from the history of Aras and try to create a society that totally breaks from it because they invent their language and literally move to a satellite planet uh, and to start this society. And the Hainish come in as this maybe passively benevolent group, right? Who, when Shevik is talking with the Terran who is from earth and has destroyed their planet uh, because of resource extraction, they say that the Hainish are moved by guilt that we don't understand because they've existed for so long. And they have this history that is endless. Um, the Terran says that it's an endless past. Uh, but when the Hainish is on board, the ship returning to Anarius with Shevik, they're discussing what it would be like to live on this planet. And the Hainish uh, individual says, you know, they say not, there's nothing new under the sun, but each of us is new, and each of these experiences that we have is new. And so there's always something novel to be exploring or, or thinking about. And there's an interesting tension between the Uras and Anaris people who kind of see history as something that's an, a struggle that they can break free from and perfect, and the Hainish who are like, well, it's, it's a, it is about your individual life and your consciousness in some way and, and how you're experiencing it. 
Would this be a good place to jump in over our heads and talk a little bit about the theories of time that are going on here? Because this is an important element of the book, and I think it ties in pretty well to what you were just saying, Friedrich, and what Carl also was saying about the movement of history. So what we learn over the course of the book is that Shevik is a a physicist who's working on temporality, and basically everybody in both on Anaris and Uras start out convinced that linear time is where it's at. He's sort of mocked and ridiculed because he gets interested in this the work of this other physicist who's sort of a crazy old cat lady. But he discovers, actually, she's really on to something here. Nobody else can really see it, but he eventually comes out with these principles of simultaneity. But by the end of the book, there's a sort of another move towards saying that actually what matters is the conjunction of linear time with cyclical time, Mm -hmm. with simultaneity. Um, I'm going to toss this over to Carl because he's at least going to be able to give a semi-competent read (laughs) on this. This was beyond my abilities. But but I'm interested in how you see that working itself out in the book, Carl, and then also what that has to do then maybe with the political structure of these two planets, the sense of history that's going on in them, um, and any other elements that you see kind of playing into that sense of simultaneous time and linear time kind of coexisting i mean like the simple way to think about it is like a movie and uh you know shout out to our movie cast that are our wonderful side cast for patrons only right if you think about a movie you're holding it in your hand the disc or the the vhs if you're old like like us maybe there it is the whole thing it's static in time and you can take out the full reel and look at it it's determined it's done in some way right it has a beginning a middle and end and when you're looking at if you could you know in the span of your arms look at every frame you could see how there's no literal motion there it's a cut out of time right it's it's done it's a full block it can't be altered in any way but then when you're watching the movie it's a linear event there's beginnings and middles and ends there's motions there's a sense of freedom there's a sense of possibility undetermined choice that that the characters can make right so those two aspects of the film are in some way equally true it's not that when you're watching it there's no final thing and it's not that when you have the final thing you can't watch it and have those experiences of potentiality. So that's kind of one way to think about this one view of time. What I like about the Delaney is Delaney is very much more, um, he's got his math masters or maybe PhD. <laughs> he doesn't He doesn't like how simple this kind of view feels when you look more deeply at the math. And so he gives you like, you know, more math and more complexity to think about with, you know, the nature of time. But in here, you know, it doesn't, it's you know it's portrayed as like more advanced than this Terran Einstein, who's ob- who's obviously awesome. who's obviously Albert Einstein, right? <laughs> and like the special and general theories of relativity come into play there, right? And and with those two, it's like you know it's relative. There's a relativity to time, but there's also a sort of extremely well thought out, rigorously mathematic definition of how time is working there as well so i don't know if that totally answers the question but 
it's sort of it goes back to your talking about with ecology too that it, for Shevik it arises out of his thinking about cycles of growth and and death and rebirth right that planets move around suns and stars and they always return to their same place in orbit those things are all moving around other things gravitational centers and if gravity and time are connected as they are for einstein then he's saying well there is cyclical quality there are cyclical qualities to that just as there are linear linear qualities in our own individual perceptions of time and there is overlap and it's something about that overlap can be explained right mathematically or can be uncovered what i think is the most important part for the book about this synchronicity and simultaneity of time is shevik you know he's this he's this physicist and he wants to make this large contribution to intergalactic life you know humanity and all these other kinds of beings out there and he does he finally completes it and that's and it's an important thing in the hainish universe and in leguin's books and it's the ansible He's created an mm. ansible, which is a thing that allows communication to take place outside of relativity, outside of time, and very similar to the um, wrinkle in time idea of Madeline Langle's uh, novels, where you take imagine time is like a a piece of cloth or something, and you take it at two points and you just bend it and connect them together, and suddenly you have this. Mm-hmm instant connection across time and space and what i think Le Guin, part of what Le Guin is saying there which makes me just like she's such a motherly grandmotherly like soothing figure is she saying you know that's what a book is that's what my books are trying to do as hmm. Fowles was talking about in his newosphere right there are ideas that connect us to other times and other places almost electromagnetically almost like a jolt of lightning they're instant it feels as though you've been shot with something from another time in another place that's what she's trying to do with some of her books that's really great i like that a lot carl can i move us in a strange direction that i think is actually connected here please um one of the reasons that by the end i i found the dispossessed to be kind of a strangely moving book is that i realized by the end that in Part of what this book is about is actually marriage, and um, the actually the the inscription to the book, um, the de- the dedication to the book, I should say, is just says for the partner, which sounds very strange. But then you realize in the world of Anaris, um, there are they don't have marriages, but they have partnerships. And what ends up happening is very few people take advantage of these partnerships. Everybody, you're sort of free to copulate, as they say, with whoever you want to. And so there's no real compelling reason to have a partnership and your children, whatever children you have, are generally raised in a dormitory, so they're not connected to you. But Shevik does finds himself unable to live without a partnership. He was raised by his father, who his mother had kind of left them to take a different job, which is very common in this society. But for whatever reason, that stuck with Shevik as a really bad thing. And he ends up falling in love with this woman named Takver. And they have a partnership that's very strong, despite the fact that they spend a lot of time apart because they get separated by jobs and things like this um, over the course of many years. But there's a sort of strength in that. So, so there's a there's a really touching element to Ursula K. Le Guin dedicating this, saying for the partner, which would be her husband Robert, um, who she was married to for forever, right, um, a very very long time. That's very moving. And then. 
there's a really the reason I thought of this in this context though is that there's a really fascinating part where Shevek has been apart from Takfir for a long time. Um, he's not been giving any postings that he wants to his jobs because he's been sort of shut out of the physicists' guild, basically, um, for being relatable. too revolutionary. <laughs> relatable. <laughs> I was just going to say. Um, and we all totally don't relate to that. <laughs> for being too revolutionary. <laughs> and um, so he's traveling across this desert, and he kind of hitches a ride with this this truck driver, basically. And the truck driver is talking to him. Um, and, and he finds out the truck driver has been partnered with this woman for 18 years. And this is the conversation they had. This is great. There was a simplicity in the way he said it that the driver liked. And he answered, 18 years. Shevik says, just starting. And the driver says, by damn, I agree with that. Now, that's what some don't see. But the way I see it, if you copulate around enough in your teens, that's when you get the most out of it. And also, you find out that it's all pretty much the same damn thing. And a good thing, too. But still, what's different isn't the copulating. It's the other person. And 18 years is just a start, all right, when it comes to figuring out that difference. Anyhow, that's the pleasure of it. The puzzles and the bluffs and the rest of it. The variety. Variety doesn't just doesn't come with just moving around. I was all over an RS Young. Drove and loaded in every division. Must have known a hundred girls in different towns. It got boring. I came back here, and I do this run every three decades, year in, year out. That's every 30 days. Through the same desert where you can't tell one sand hill from the next, and it's all the same for 3,000 kilos, whichever way you look, and go home to the same partner. And I've never been bored once. It isn't changing around from place to place that keeps you lively. It's getting time on your side, working with it not against it. And I think that's a really lovely sort of out of the, the mouth of this very unsophisticated sort of truck driver on an RS, a really touching picture of a marriage or partnership, long-term partnership that is related to that sense of time, that it's not necessarily about the variety, um, the outward variety. It's about this sort of inward richness that provides its own variety. And I like that as a sort of gloss a personal gloss on time being both linear because obviously mm. in any marriage or partnership you're moving through time right you have all these changes that are happening outwardly but then also a sort of simultaneity that eternal uh, sense of newness that comes mm. with it i think that's a really nice picture of marriage that emerges in, in an unexpected place because the book's not really about marriage but it is sort of also about that and i think that's a beautiful sentiment and because I, I wanted to talk about something similar you know you're you're bringing up an idea that i think we talked about in a pod a long time ago that uh it comes up in my dinner with andre andre is telling wallace sean hey when a couple is in a room together that room can contain so many things like those people can be on an adventure over years and it's because they're the two like they, they know each other more and more deeply than they do every day it's always something uh new in a way that going and copulating as they say in the book with someone else isn't going to teach you about like the inner depths of that person and spending time with them and talking to them is the way that you do that later on uh in the book the narrator is describing concepts of time again which you're talking about concepts of love and concepts of time that are interrelated and the narrator is kind of speaking through shevik's mind or it's, there's more free and direct discourse shevik says that fulfillment is a function of time and that, you know, when you're out being sexually promiscuous, 
there's an end. Things end, and then you move on to the next thing, and it's always a new thing. But if you're in that same thing, like Soren's talking about, a marriage, a partnership, whatever, with sort of a mutual feeling of commitment, that that's what gives meaning to a relationship is time. Le Guin writes, outside the locked room of these relationships is the landscape of time in which the spirit may, with luck and courage, construct the fragile makeshift improbable roads and cities of fidelity a landscape inhabitable by human beings it is not until an act occurs within the landscape of the past and the future that it is a human act and that loyalty and fidelity are these things that you return to every day and you have to keep returning to they're not just one-time vows they require you to keep coming back and that is like like sort saying the sort of human side of small and temporality and all this stuff that's going on in the book on a more mathematical or scientific level this podcast has been, again, about the nature of love several times. We It comes up. And this book is a surprising, maybe maybe not surprising if you're a Le Guin fan, window into one way of looking at commitment. Yeah, I find the book to be full of so many like pithy, wise statements. Similar to what you're saying, Friedrich, there's one, we are all the children of time. The sunlights differ, but there is only one darkness. My favorite one is, free your mind of deserving and earning and you'll begin to be able to think. And I and and similar to Manhunter which we read on which we watched on our film pod, this book does a really good job of portraying like the a knowledge quest and the personal if not social rewards that come along with devoting one's life to a certain kind of knowledge and a certain kind of quest for thinking deeply, thinking richly, exploring a kind of mental landscape to follow up just on the line of thought i think that you're pushing us in odonian partnerships are sort of seen as more the the the, the rare ones that exist more stable and more interesting than like marriages on eros or on terra because at any moment this partnership can be dissolved by you know without any legal ramifications they're fragile that's what makes them more interesting i guess there's a freedom on the planet that allows for a sort of fragility of relationships, but then there's also the demand of the society that prevents you from that same sort of repetitiveness in your work. You can't just return to the same work every day for your entire life and thus come to like a deeper relationship with your work. And they do have a sort of Protestant work ethic on that planet. They are all about work and they find it life-giving in some way. They do have variety in their work that they have to go do. And that kind of throws off the sort of deep, like I'm an expert in one thing, I'm an old hand in one thing, knowledge that you're able to get about about an occupation, right? Does that seem right to you guys? It's hard to imagine an Odonian sense of vocation. Yeah. There's a work ethic, but not like a calling. You mean? Yeah, and um, what that's making me think of, this beautiful passage from Auden's long poem, Ori Canonici, and he's talking about, this is great, he's talking about vocation, and he says this is from the sext part of it, not that kind of sext. This is based on the church hours. He says, you, do, you need not see what someone is doing to know if it is his vocation. You have only to watch his eyes. A cook mixing a sauce, a surgeon making a primary incision, a clerk completing a bill of lading, wear the same rapt expression, forgetting themselves in a function. How beautiful it is, that eye-on-the-object look. To ignore the appetitive goddesses, to desert the formidable shrines, that one may be worthy of their mystery, what a prodigious step to have taken. 
There should be monuments, there should be odes to the nameless heroes who took it first, to the first flaker of flints who forgot his dinner, the first collector of seashells to remain celibate. Where should we be but for them? Feral still, unhouse-trained, still wandering through forests, without a consonant to our names. I love that. It's a great, um, it's a great, great poem. And and there's that sense of like, to what to what degree is the Odonian idea of work a productive one and then to what degree is it an unproductive one because there is a, a nice i mean there are really interesting things about this system of work and really refreshing things it's like yes i think a lot of academics should have to go out and shovel shit for a while oh yeah and, and learn how to do something with their hands or whatever right there's a really there's a good element to that but then there's also this sort of uh, a sense in which the, this system prevents that what Auden calls that eye on the object look, because there's a constant break. There's no sense of attention that you can give to something. There's no sense of yeah ego too. Like in the the Auden hits on a great point about the egoizing that's criticized uh, in our in an Aris that if you're as rapt as one of these people in the Auden poem, you are almost without ego, right? Like you are fully engaged in the task and and whatever pride you have on a psychological level isn't active it's really interesting for Takfer in the book she's like a marine biologist basically and she frequently is described as like missing meals because she has to be there to feed them the marine life or what to take care of the marine life that she's dealing with and so she has even though she's not as played up as Shevik right um, she's shown to be sort of dedicated and brilliant in her own way in the way that she's dealing with these things and kind of keeping a sort of ruthless dedication to them. I think the book does make these points, though, this um, Auden-esque point. I mean, that's why at the end, everyone is sort of, his whole planet is against Shevik that he's egoizing and that his manuscript on physics, they think he created a cult of, like a, a sort of cult of personality around himself by publishing his own physics and going against this really um, corrupt guy at their at their physics commune who sort of refuses everybody and and doesn't let Shevik who's obviously much smarter than him Sabul is his name he doesn't let Shevik like basically take the lead which he kind of naturally deserves and he keeps kind of mitigating him in the beginning uh it's you know around page 57 in my book his his like mentor Metis is telling him like he's kind of like I don't know if I should go. Maybe it's egoizing to think that I'm going to be a great physicist. And she says, you know, you must go. You must go for the books and for the minds you'll meet there. You will not waste that mind in a desert. You know, she's telling him, like, you have this calling. You are preternaturally gifted in mathematics and physics. It'd be a waste to yourself and everybody to not pursue that. And and part of Le Guin's criticism of purely non-egoistic like a total ego death anarchism is Shevik who you know it's okay to have a little bit of ego to have a little bit of pride in yourself as a leader when you kind of it would be better for all if you led you know there are those people who have real gifts you know real natural gifts and again on the social level that kind of that critiques the kind of bloat around these socially propelled things like 
oh, well, if you're just mediocre, well, you should try and be a great artist because our society values the great artists. So go for it and you do that too. In this society on the social level, that's like, you know, no, no, no. Go shovel the shit and go move to a different town. I actually think it's kind of more, it's more tragic in this world, the the lack of a calling. Because then you are just sort of going with friends from place to place and and you're you're always provided for so there's no there's no sense in which like even your mediocre thing is yours you know there is nothing mm-hmm. that is kind of your cut out individualized aspect of society you can only get that if you're sort of extremely gifted and so that that kind of makes it even more tragic to not have a calling in this in this world Shevik meets a guy named Solace, I think, who writes music, right? And he says it's like music that they don't like at the conservatory. And so he becomes like the artist who goes and shovels the shit. He works his his work assignments that they need down at Labor Central or whatever. But then on his, on his own time, he composes like these discordant or non-harmonic or whatever you call them, uh, uh, symphonic pieces and he just kind of does it for his own enjoyment, right? And so there's a mm-hmm. sort of, it's not like there's this great romantic capital R individual artist out there who's rebelling against the system. He's just like, well, I don't, I can't do this at the conservatory. I'll, uh, I'll just do it on my own time. And what happens to that person, right? Uh, on the other hand, there is Tyrion, right? I was right? His childhood Tyrion, friend, yeah. who's who's the playwright. Turns out to be a playwright. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. and is um, writes this sort of satire that's very it's almost like um like a like soviet era censorship or something right it's like um he writes this this satire and it's not accepted nobody likes it and they they strongly suggest that he volunteer himself for an insane asylum (laughs) um for therapy and 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 then later you know years go by and shevik meets him again and he's this like broken husk of a man and he keeps this is the saddest thing shevik says He's describing it to Tackford and he says he kept he kept coming up to me and like he wanted me to read the play over and over again because he just kept rewriting it and he was like locked in this obsessive rut. So there is the sense of like I, I agree with you, Friedrich, that there's sort of a positive sense of like, okay, I'm just gonna go do my own thing in my spare time. Sort of like a Charles Ives, right, who spent his whole life as a an insurance uh, agent and then like wrote these weird modernist pieces in his spare time. Um, and nobody like at his work even knew he was doing it. So there's like that vision of it. But then there's also the sense of people maybe not some people not being able to reconcile themselves to this and kind of being driven mad by it. And and, and Shevik even says it's easier for me as a physicist because it doesn't feel like the physics is so much a part of me. But for the artist, how do you escape that being a part of you? So that's an interestingly posed problem right yeah it's kind of like he's the limit case um against which shevik is allowed to still be not the ultimate outsider you know and, yeah. and i think he kills himself right or he he dies tragically Tyrion, and it's because this play would like kind of made him a, a perennial pariah he can't return to the society because he's like really gotten to the outside of it and in a way that showed them you know they're not as free as they think they are right mm-hmm. it's only his kind of totally absolute freedom that he's he's making in this play that puts him yeah, i don't know if i would totally say that the music guy i was talking about had a positive existence either i was sort of wondering like 
what happens to that person and in this mm. world like what happens to someone who writes like the christoph penderecki pieces do they get accepted eventually by they get put in stanley kubrick movies not in this world so then what does he do and he's out there working like the philip glass day job while he's composing yes. his music and then and then what and then yeah and you have the extreme case that you guys are bringing up of this guy kind of driven mad by that i guess what do you what do you make of the book as a tract for anarchism do you think it is or do you think it's not do you think ultimately it's a novel or do you think it's a manifesto is one way to put it i think it's a a novel no i think i mean i think it's a novel i think it's a I mean, it's an ambiguous utopia. It is still a utopia, though. And like you were saying about A and B, as you know, like what follows for that to get there. Like it is asking what is B. It's not just saying, oh, man, this came up when we were talking about MFAs and the program era. But <laughs> I think that same person that's, that Soren met who <laughs> said they write beautiful sentences and have nothing to say <laughs> also said that their critique of the world is just like capitalism bad. And that's it. Like capitalism is bad you gotta have something more to say than that and i think like when is like yeah i have something a lot obviously i have a lot more to say i'm gonna start with like what would be the world outside of capitalism because you need to be able to imagine it it can't just be a critique of us how boring would that be and so i don't think it's a manifesto because she explores the complications of that world and what can be difficult about it but it's like an earnest exploration of of what anarcho-syndicalism could look like. Maybe that's more useful than a manifesto. Yeah, can I suggest that actually an anarchist manifesto might be <laughs> um, in its essence a contradiction in terms? <laughs> there yeah. you go. And, and, and what's delightful about this book, I think, is that it is not coercive mm -hmm. in the way that a manifesto might be or or domineering or in the way that a manifesto might be. It's, it is exploratory and it is, it's earnest in that exploration. And I think you're right, Carl, that she absolutely comes down on a particular side, but she's willing, I think she's an honest enough novelist mm -hmm. to let those ambiguities persist and kind of lead us along there and, and even allow for these random moments of just like pleasure in ways, you know, that you wouldn't expect. Like the people on Uras are very, maybe there are some exceptions, but many of the people he meets on Uras kind of surprise him with how kind of well-rounded there are there's like a one of his fellow scientists he goes to his house and spends some time with him and he realizes like he and his wife actually have a deep kind of complex relationship even though on the surface it seems like oh it's like she's his property or something it's actually more complicated than that and even the old like blowhard scientist who's like a super big jingoistic imperialist guy is allowed to be a real character he's like he likes talking to him because he's an interesting character and he talks science really well and all these other things and so there's 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 that complexity that's allowed to 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 be present that really i think in the end makes a more compelling case for anarchism than just a manifesto would yeah it reminds me of this line from a different delaney novel where he says the smartest person i ever knew made sure that his friends were the people most different from himself that he could still respect <laughs> and and i think Le Guin applies that to all of her characters, which I really like. That's how I feel about all of you. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how we feel about all of our listeners. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's, a, that's a good place uh, for us to stop for tonight. Um, thanks for tuning in. We hope you've enjoyed this. Um, do go back. If you haven't listened to Trouble on Triton, that episode, go back and listen to that. And 
think about the differences that are emerging here between these different visions of utopia, heterotopia. We will be back soon. We're going to have another uh, book pod coming up in a couple of weeks on the Ian McEwan novel Amsterdam, which is a kind of interesting novel about obsession and about music. We've talked a little bit about music today, um, obsession and music and friendship, how those things tie together. Um, so we'll be back with that. We're also um, going to have a patrons only pod this week, bouncing off of our sci-fi theme. We're going to be looking at two very different novels of space exploration and isolation and madness. We're pairing Danny Boyle's 2007 film Sunshine with Claire Denis' 2018 film High Life. Both are very weird and interesting and doing doing some fun things with space. That's I wanted to pair not. Sunshine with Sunshine Cleaning, but I was outvoted. I wanted to pair it with, with Claire Denis' Let the Sunshine. I was just going <laughs> to say that. Do I steal your joke? Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> also <laughs> starring Juliette Binoche, but yeah. Also starring yeah. Juliette Binoche. <laughs> We're going to be recording that. So if you are a patron, you're going to get access to that. If you're not a patron, what are you waiting for? Go sign up. Patreon.com slash the readers Karamaza. Um, until uh, you hear us again, we will let Cat Keyboard play us out. They follow basically the same career trajectory, right? Cuba Gooding Jr. and Benton Carson. (laughs) It's just like one minute you're on top of the world and then the next you're in snow dogs.